I don't think any of us wants to be that guy. The person that basically kind of coasts through life, coasts through relationships, doesn't really put a lot of effort into it, doesn't really get much out of it. And in any relationship, whether it's a parent-child relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a, a marriage, um, hopefully we want to do our very best. We want that relationship to be the best it can possibly be. And when we think of our relationship with our Father, with our Creator, with our Savior, the same is true, I think. I think we want that relationship to be real. We want it to be dynamic. We want it to be engaged. And yet, oftentimes, it's not. That's what we want to talk about this weekend. And, and all through the Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God speaks to His people who are worshiping Him, they're doing all the right things. They're going through all the right motions. They're here. They're, they're at the place they should be, at the temple. They're offering sacrifices like they're supposed to. They're uttering the prayers that they're supposed to pray. And yet God says, not impressed. Not impressed. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The writer of Hebrews warns us, and the writer of Hebrews says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's very easy for us to kind of go into auto mode. So that's what we want to talk about. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and I'd love you to join me. We're in Mark chapter 11. And whether uh, you're joining us uh, wherever you are, whether you're at one of the campuses or joining us online, uh, we're going to read the first 25 verses. And I'm absolutely not going to be able to talk about everything in these verses. Um, it's a big bite for the weekend, and we're going to just kind of talk about some highlights here. But Mark chapter 11, let me start reading at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem... And they came to Bethpage and Bethany uh, at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter in, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Just say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went. And found a colt outside in the street, tied it, tied to at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the, that colt? They answered, Jesus, uh, they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of and those who follow shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry, seen in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. 
When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, it is, not, is it not written, my house will be a call to house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, and they began to look for, looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When everyone came, when, excuse me, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city. In the morning, as they were walking along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said, Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their hearts, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whoever, whatever you ask for in prayer and believe that you have received it, and it will be given, it will be yours. And uh, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so your Father in heaven may forgive your sins also. Now, this last part where it says, if anyone says to the mountain, go throw it in the sea, and ask anything in my name, and I'll give it to you, uh, I don't have time to get into that. I'm actually going to be shortly doing a blog article on that, because I think there's a, a, a really a contingent of Christians out there that are teaching uh, a name it, claim it, that, that Jesus is saying that if you just ask for it in faith, that God is required to give it to you. And I, I think that's a terrible misunderstanding of this passage. But there's three things, and I think you'll find this in your notes, three important movements and moments it, with Jesus in our passage. First, we see him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, what we expect in, uh, as a king, and they're, they're hailing him as the king of the Jews, that's essentially what the people are doing as they're spreading the palm branches down, as they're spreading their cloaks down. They're declaring him the king of the Jews. So you would expect in that day that if a king rode, he rode on a white horse in a place of power. <laughs> Instead, what does he ride in on? He rides in on a little colt donkey. And, and interestingly enough, the phrase is there, and maybe you caught it. It says that this donkey had never been ridden before. Never. Now, I thought that was odd, and I thought, well, why did Mark put that detail in there? Why did he make it very clear that this is the first time this donkey had ever been ridden? Is it because Jesus is over nature, and this is the, 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 this? Uh, this donkey was able to have Jesus sit on him without any problem. Is that it? No, I don't think that's it. Could have been, but I don't think that's it. I think this is the point. That our Father in heaven just doesn't work randomly. He has a plan. He has a purpose for everything in creation. And this donkey, this little donkey, had been born for one purpose the greatest purpose that it would ever do in its whole life, and it would be to carry the Messiah as he rode into the city that God loved, the city of Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost. This little donkey had been 
picked by God to carry out this royal duty, this little detail. And Jesus says, go in there and, and tell them that the master needs it for a while. He'll return it. But essentially, the purpose of this donkey is to give Jesus a ride. Now, if Jesus can take care, or, you know, the Father in heaven can take care of the little details in and have a little donkey ready to go that had never been ridden but was born for this purpose. It seems to me that a lot of things in our lives are pretty second nature to him. In other words, if he goes to this detail, then he, and, and the scripture says he knows the very hairs of your head, we walk away knowing that our Father not just not only knows what's going on in our lives, but has a plan for us. So just a little thing there. The other thing we see about the donkey, it's a fulfillment of the prediction by Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes on you, righteous and victorious. Now you would expect riding on a white horse, but it's not what you see. What you see is lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And in Jesus, that's what we see. We see the extreme opposites brought together. We see power and weakness. We see majesty and humility. And we see both of those traits, those, those kind of counterbalancing each other as he rides in. What we, what we do with Jesus, and this is what I found, we, we look to Jesus and we want him to do something for us, but it's not necessarily the best thing for us. What do I mean by that? We want Jesus to solve our earthly problems, but Jesus comes to solve our eternal problems. We want the, this, this, this quick remedy for our current problem, and Jesus says, I'm looking long term. We want Jesus to judge the bad guys, but we get a Jesus who makes us look at our sin. That there, yes, there are bad guys out there, but we're also, in a sense, a bad guy, and we have to acknowledge that. You see, Jesus came to solve our biggest problem, the one we don't often consider big. We say, oh, I'm not perfect, I haven't arrived, but you know, I'm not as bad as John, I'm not as bad as Mary, I'm not as bad as them. And, 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 and what Jesus came in his name says, he shall save his people from their sins. The biggest problem we have is that we don't have peace with God, and we can't make peace with God. So that's the first one. Riding on a donkey. Secondly, we have him clearing out the Gentile temple court. Now, we have to understand the layout of the temple, and it, it's not that complex, but just understand there's different areas. And, and the, further you're, the further away from the, the, the holy place you are, the less you are on the totem pole, on the, the you know, pole of significance. And so the last furthest out area, the largest area, was the court of Gentiles. And that was where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come. There was a, 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 a court of the Jews, which the Gentiles couldn't enter into, so this was the only part of the temple that they could approach. It was a, the biggest division of the temple. It was the place for them to pray. It was supposed to be for them to pray. But what we find is thousands of people were buying and selling animals at hundreds of locations. There were money and currency exchangers all doing their business of sacrifice. 
Remember, these people are coming from a long way off. They have to offer a perfect sacrifice. They can't just bring the animal in. They have to bring a perfect animal. So the perfect animals were supplied, but they had to pay for it, and they had to exchange from different uh, denominations because they were all over. The historian Josephus says that on any given Passover week, it was not uncommon for 25,000 lambs that would, they would be bought, sold, and sacrificed. 25,000 in a week. So you can imagine there was a lot of trade going on that week in the court of the Gentiles. Not only that, you had the money changers, and we didn't even mention that a lamb was one of the sacrifices. There were other sacrifices that were offered there. Um, what you have to think about, and you've all seen pictures of it, usually it's on the news in the morning, they, they show the market, when everything's going on in the market, they, they show somebody who's, uh, you know, starting the market, and then you look down on the, on the market floor, and there's just people all over the place. You can't even see the floor. You know, that's what kind of got a picture. So Jesus walks in there, and he starts overturning the tables. He starts making a ruckus. Can you imagine him walking into the New York State exchange, stock exchange, and starting to overturn the computers and stuff? It's kind of like that. And the point is, this was the only place the Gentiles were allowed uh, to pray. This is the place where they could seek God. Instead, it became a place of trade. And that's why Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he's echoing the prophet Malachi, the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Malachi spoke of God's people, and he said this. He says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I, will not, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept offerings from your hands. What Jesus is saying is this, the temple was meant to be an all-inclusive place for Jews and Gentiles to come together to worship God, and it had become a mindless place of business. People were going through the motions of worship. They were doing heartless worship. They were doing all the right things, but their heart wasn't in it. Now, Think about your relationships. What is it in a relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship or a parent-child or just a, a deep friendship, what is it that makes that relationship meaningful? How do, how do you get that relationship to develop to a fully deve developed marriage or friendship or relationship. How do you do that? I, I think there's two qualities that have to be there. Number one, there has to be a level of trust. You have to trust the other person. You're never going to open yourself up to somebody who you don't trust. You're never going to, you're never going to, you have to believe they have your back. You have to believe that they'll stand up for you, they'll defend you, they'll protect you, and that you could fully reveal yourself to them without being blasted by them. You have to have that level of trust. But the second thing you need in any relationship is a level of commitment. 
that we need to feel that they will remain true to us. They will hang in there with us. Even when things go south, even when things get tough, they're going to hang in there. The one thing that kids need to know by their parents is no matter how much of a mess they make of their lives, the parents, the kids need to know that their parents say, there'll never be a day that I'll ever turn my back on you. Never. I'll be disappointed, I'll be sad, I'll be, yeah, all that. But I'm never going to turn my back on you. Never. In a marriage relationship, hopefully you have that thing that, yeah, we're going to let each other down, we're going to make mistakes, hopefully we'll confess, but there's never going to be a day where I'll walk away. Those are the relationships that we so desperately want, we so desperately need, but it costs us because we have to say, I am going to be trustworthy. I am going to keep my commitments. And here's the thing, here's the thing. In the most important relationship that we have, it's not with humans, it's with our Father in heaven. Most of us would say we have been less than trustworthy. We've been unfaithful. We've been unfaithful. We've turned our backs on him. We've often been unfaithful. We've, we've often denied him. And here's what it says in 2 Timothy. It's very interesting. Jesus says this. It says, it says this about Jesus. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now think about that for a minute. That says that even when we fail him, which we do, even when we don't have his back, which we don't, even when we, you know, we make promises and break them, he won't. He won't. Maybe the fact that we forsake him in worship by going through the motions, by putting our worship on autopilot by showing little or no interest in seeking him is, is the biggest transgression we have. You, you understand what's going on here. We're not talking about a temple that was taking place 2,000 years ago. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about right now, right here, and we're talking about how engaged are you with your creator, with your father, with your savior? How engaged are you? Or are you just going through the motion? Just going through the motions. If I feel like it. Imagine going through the motions in your marriage. Just doing what you need to do. <laughs> I told this before. Let me tell it one more time. So let's just say it's uh, our 30, you know, it's, we're past 30, but let's just say it's our 30th anniversary and I plan, I get, you know, I get a babysitter. I don't even know if we needed one when I, we were 30, but, you know, but essentially, uh, probably we didn't. So just strike that out, and now I've wasted time. So, all right. But we go out, and we go to a nice restaurant, and, and I get her flowers, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a great evening. And uh, at the end of dinner, after dessert, she looks in my eyes, and she says, oh, and she'll never do this, but she would say something like, oh, Matt, this has been like one of the best times we've ever had together, ever. I just so, I'm so thankful for what you've done and how you planned this all out, how you, 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 it was, it was great. It was amazing. And, 
And I said to her, well, we were married for 30 years. I felt like we should do something. It's my duty as your husband. I'm glad you enjoyed it. That would take the wick out of it, wouldn't it? That would kind of put a damper on the evening. That would kind of wreck everything. Why? Because I'm just saying, hey, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. My heart's not really in it, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, if it doesn't work in a human relationship, it probably doesn't work well with our worship of God, does it? Let's talk about one other story, one other event here. The cursing of the fig tree. This is kind of one of these odd little things. Now, the fig tree is very interesting because as you look at a fig tree over in, in, in the Holy Land... Sometimes you'll, you'll be singing to yourself. You're walking through and you see a fig tree and all of a sudden a tune comes to your head. Just happens, right? But that being said, you'll see these trees and they look like they're, they've got leaves on them. They're green. And Jesus walks up, he sees the green and there's no figs. So he curses the tree. And some people are going, well, that's a little radical. Jesus, come on, lighten up. But you have to understand symbolically what's going on here. Now, we're going to put all this together here. So the tree represents, and it's often, rep the fig tree and, and the, the vine is often referenced to the nation of Israel. And, what he, what he, and so he comes back the next day, he clears out the temple, he comes back the next day, and the disciples say, well, the tree's dead. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, what is Jesus doing here? Notice what happened. We, we talked about Jesus riding in on the donkey. What was going on there? People were saying, you're the, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. Short period of time later, they'd be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Right? You come into the temple and you say, hey, look at what they're doing. A lot of activities happening here. A lot of people. Look at all these people. They've all come to worship Almighty God. And Jesus goes in and says, a lot of activity, but no fruit. See what's happening with the tree Jesus is showing. It's the illustration that mindless worship, worship that's on autopilot, is uh, dead to God. The people were honoring God with sacrifices, but their hearts weren't in it. They were offering up heartless worship. And, and this is why Amos, the prophet Amos, the Old Testament prophet says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Uh, though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. He's saying, stop singing to me. Your heart's not in it. It's going through the motions. How do you like it when you're in a relationship or a friendship and the other person's kind of going through the motion with you? They're there because they should be, because they don't want to be, and they're, you, you know, and you go, you know, that doesn't feel good. But how does it feel when somebody really puts their heart in it? Somebody's really invested. Somebody really cares. Somebody really gets you 
It's a totally different thing, isn't it? And essentially, that's what we're talking about. But we're talking about the worship of God. So I want to spend the last few minutes we have is in this. And this is the last part of your notes. How do you kickstart your cold heart? Because that's really what it comes down to. Our hearts get cold over time if we're not careful, if we don't protect it. It's like a fire. You know when you're camping out and you, you make a fire, you have to tend to the fire. If you don't tend to the fire, it'll go out. It gets cold, right? And so you have to keep checking the fire. So how do you do that? Let me give you a few ways that you can re kickstart your heart, your cold heart. Number one, begin with praise. First uh, Thessalonians 5 says this, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in, Je- in Christ Jesus. So this is talking about rejoicing and giving thanks. So what this means is that we don't, and I don't think we do this enough, uh, maybe sometimes at Thanksgiving. What we do at Thanksgiving is we have candy corn, that candy corn, and we go around and say, you know, three of we get two or three each, and we say, I'm thankful for this or I'm thankful for this. Well, this is one of those times where you sit down and you say, God, I am so thankful that you did this for my life or you were here for me here, this, uh, this part. And you, 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 you spend time and you thank him for what he's done. You know, you read a number of the letters that Paul writes. He says, I give thanks always to my God for you. There's a billion things in this world that you can give thanks for. When was the last time you sat down and you made a list of the top five things you're thankful for and you just spent time in prayer saying, God, thank you so much for the way that you did this, the way you worked here, the way you helped me here. List the ways that God has been so good to you and thank him. And what this does is it creates in us a thankful heart. A thankful heart is an engaged heart. How do you feel when you do something for someone and they take time to thank you? You get a note from them. You get a call from them. You get a text from them. But they ignite. One of the things that drives, probably drives you nuts, it drives me nuts sometimes, where you kind of go out of your way for somebody, and it's like crickets, right? <laughs> Nothing. But you know, and you shouldn't do it for that, but it's nice when you do something for someone and they go, hey, I just want to tell you, you helped me so much, thank you. We like hearing that, don't we? Secondly, focus on your forgiveness. Notice 1 John 2, 2, verse 12 says this, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven, forgiven on account of his name. Now, I don't have a lot of time, but let me just talk. There's a parable, and this is really important. There's, I think one of the things that Christians are struggling with, and they've not, they're not coming to grips with anymore, I think we don't feel like we need to be forgiven very much. We don't think we're very bad. We think we're okay. We just think we need a little buff off and a little, a little wax, a little wash, and, and we're pretty good. And uh, we're, we're not thinking along the lines of Isaiah 6 where Isaiah saw the Lord and says, woe is me for I am undone. <laughs> we're not thinking along those lines. We're thinking, ah, not so bad. Because we're generally comparing ourselves to people that we perceive are doing worse than we are spiritually. 
But there's this parable that Jesus tells, and it's about a guy who owes this, this, uh, this landowner. He owes him a lot of money. He comes in, and, and, and the, the guy uh, forgives him his debt and, and completely. I mean, he owed him a lot, more than he could pay in a lifetime. And he forgives him everything. And he immediately leaves, and he finds somebody who owes him like two bucks. And he grabs him by the neck, and he says, you need to pay me. <laughs> and you're going to jail until you pay me, debtor's prison until you pay me. And so some of the people around there, they knew that this guy had been forgiven this great debt. And they see him and the, his behavior, and they go to this guy who forgave him. And they go, you know, this guy you just forgave, he just went out and did this. He says, get him back here. And, uh, you know, I'm summarizing this. And he essentially, he says, don't you understand what it means to be forgiven? Don't you understand the debt that I just forgave you? Do you not get this? And the answer is no, he didn't get it. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, in two ways. Number one, when you begin to think of the great debt that you've been forgiven because Jesus went to a cross and said, I forgive you. Then you're beginning to start to understand the depth of the need that you had that Jesus took. Secondly, when you understand that, you go out and you're offended or hurt by someone else and you go, it's a flea bite. It's a, it's a mosquito. It's minuscule. It's small. It's nothing. Of course I forgive you because I've been forgiven so much more. We don't go out and wring the necks of people when we've been forgiven a lot. And that's why if you're having trouble forgiving people, you need to start swimming in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ because you do not understand it. Forgiven people find their hearts ignited for Jesus when you consider how much he forgave you. On the cross, Jesus said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, it's very interesting, and, and maybe you noticed this. Uh, I recently was reminded of this. What is Jesus forgiving them for? Things they don't even know they're doing. He, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Have you ever considered that the sins that Jesus forgave you for on the cross aren't just for the things you're well aware of, but for the things you have no idea that you have done. You have no idea. Jesus is saying, there's a whole bunch of people around me who are crucifying me right now. They have no idea what they're doing. That's the forgiveness we get from him. That's why the song says this, and it says, amazing love, how can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's written by someone who understands that God became man from heaven to earth, born as a baby in Christmas, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, that thou, my God, should die for me. I don't even get it. I can't wrap my brain around it. I don't understand it. It is amazing. When you begin to do that, you're, you kickstart your heart, and your heart becomes forgiving because it understands it's forgiven. Number three, 
we remember the cross. Now, I just want to read uh, a few verses here because I want you to get the context. In uh, Mark chapter 10, in verse 32, it says, They were on their way, this is Jesus and his disciples. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. So Jesus is preparing them. He's going to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to the cross, on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to suffer and die. So he's preparing his disciples, his followers, so they will understand it. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, when you read this, it sounds like Jesus is talking about someone else. This is what they're going to do to the Son of Man. You know who the Son of Man is, right? It's him. He's saying, this is what they're going to do to me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. And they're going to execute me in probably the most cruelest way that execution has ever been done since man was ever in existence. Crucifixion. And essentially, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm on my death march. I'm headed towards death. I'm going to be crucified on a cross. As we read this passage, we ref and we reflect on where he is, was going and what he was doing for us, it cannot help but kickstart your heart. You know, sometimes... When you can't get a motor going, an engine going, um, you'll shoot some starter fluid into it, into the carburetor, and sometimes that'll help kick, the, you know, kick. This is, this is what these are. Sometimes we just need to reflect on these and say, this is amazing. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and he doesn't shrink away from it. He doesn't pull up. He doesn't say, oh, no, they don't deserve it. He goes through it. And on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And the last words that he uttered from the cross were, it is finished. He did that for you and for me. And so, can we really come, gather together, or even go on our day-to-day -day life in our worship of him and go through the motions, phone it in, put it on autopilot, Dare we? God never appreciated mindless, autopilot, heartless worship. Jesus was saying, not just to the people and to his disciples, he was saying, these three stories illustrate, I don't really care for you just to go through the motions. I want your heart. If you're not willing to give me your heart, don't play the game and go through the motions because we both know what we're doing here. But if you want to kickstart your heart, there's three ways to begin to do it. Now let me tell you where we're going to go next weekend. Next weekend we're going to talk about what would you do? Here's the question. What would you do if you sent your son and daughter to do business for you to another city 
And the people they were doing business with, you were doing business with, they took your son and daughter, or daughter, and they brutalized them and murdered them. What would you do? What would your response be? We're going to talk about a real event that took place. And we're going to talk about how that father responded next week. Let's pray. Father, help us that we would not worship mindlessly, heartlessly, thoughtlessly, but that we would worship you in spirit and in truth with fully engaged hearts, mindful of what you have done and what you are doing, what you will do in our lives. May we worship you fully engaged, amazed, and in awe of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.